If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The cycle continues on and on and on and on. The details change, but at its core, it remains the same. The three goddesses Din, Faror, and Nehru descended from the heavens and created the beautiful lands of Hyrule. Before departing, they blessed this new realm with relics of their grace. Power, courage, and wisdom formed the Triforce, and the one who would protect it would be the goddess Hylia. The Triforce was kept safe within the sacred realm, and it was said that if one who was pure of heart touched it, their wish would be granted and peace would flood across the lands. But if one of evil intent touched it, dark times would come to Hyrule. With time, the inhabitants that walked the land began to lust after the power of the Triforce and war began for control over the sacred realm. Atrocities were committed to gain access to the sacred realm, and in mercy the goddess Hylia sent the innocents of the land high into the sky to be free from demonic intentions. While the flames of war would eventually be quelled by heroes of legend, it was not without a price. The demon king Demise cast a curse upon the Triforce that the one with the blood of the goddess and the soul of a hero would never escape his hatred. They would each hold an aspect of the Triforce, and this cycle of war and strife would happen again and again. True peace would never come to Hyrule. War would come and go, the threat of the Demon King return never truly faded from memory and war returned throughout the ages. To further protect the Sacred Realm, a man called Raru built the Temple of Time about the entrance to the Sacred Realm and sealed the way shut with three keys and the Master Sword. The only one who could pull the sword was the one blessed by courage. Inevitably, the Great Evil One would rise, born of the desert-dwelling Gerudo tribe, and the aspects of courage and wisdom would have to rise to end the aspect of power's terrible threat against all life on the lands. The cycle continues on and on and on. The details change, but at its core, it remains the same. That is, until... At the finale of a particularly vicious war, which once again saw Ganon defeated, things changed. Sheikah technology brought to life a legion of guardians and four divine beasts that aided the hero of legend and the wise princess in stopping Ganon. When peace began to return, the king of Hyrule commanded that the Sheikah bury their guardians and monolithic divine beasts. If their technology was corrupted or turned against the kingdom, it would be apocalyptic. It was too dangerous to be allowed, and they could either bury their pasts or become exiled from the lands. And surprisingly, many of the Sheikah agreed. While no small percentage of them rebelled against this and left the tribe for more nefarious endeavors, they widely stood by the decision and dismantled or buried their technology. From then on, the Sheikah lived very modest and simple lives in service to the crown. Though, too, for the one called Ganon, things also changed. He grew weary of this cycle of rebirth. Every 100 years, he would be reincarnated as the sole male born to the Gerudo of the desert. He would rise to power as the king of the Gerudo. He would attempt to seize the power of the Triforce for himself, face off against power and wisdom, and ultimately be defeated. But no more. Ganon abandoned his cycle of rebirth. And for 10,000 years, Ganon festered in his prison. He grew in strength and became a being of pure malice while the outside world changed. With the calamity gone and no signs of his return being imminent, the events of the past widely fell into legend. With each passing century turning into passing millennia, the tales of those skyward bound, adrift in time, and steeped in twilight were stories passed down from generation to generation. For those 10,000 years, the sages of old were lost to time, save a few beloved heroes whose names still rang out in honor. The Kokiri of the forest vanished. 
old settlements fell to ruin and new ones arose. The Gerudo grew their own cities and outposts, became more engaged in the world than they were in the past. The Master Sword was left to slumber, but with the exodus of forbidden ancient technology, things really didn't change too much over the years. It remained ever the recognizable land of Hyrule. This video is sponsored by Manscaped. Hey, hey you, yeah, you. Your junk is important. Hygiene is important. Treat your cash and prizes with the love that they deserve. With Manscaped, you can get all the tools for the job and they were kind enough to send me their performance package 4.0. So let's see what's inside. We've got anti-chafing boxers, very important, also very comfortable. The lawnmower 4.0 for your groin area so your partner isn't flossing their teeth on you. And it comes with attachments and a charger base so you're all taken care of. And fellas, they've got what you need to leave your testiculation situation feeling cool and smelling clean. These are the Crop Reviver Ball Toner and the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant. And these get the tiptoe stamp of approval because uh, this stuff smells pretty nice. Oh, and the Weed Whacker Nose and Hair Trimmer. It's made with the same safe skin tech as the groin trimmer so you're not manhandling your nose or ear hair out of your body. But if you need more than just loot for the family jewels, well, Manscaped has a huge variety of self-care products, including full body care sets and kits for beard care. Everyone deserves to feel good about themselves, and that includes you, boys. If you want to give Manscaped a try and help support the channel, look in the description of this video for more information. Using promo code LADYOFLORE, you can get 20% off your order, along with two free gifts and free international shipping. But that's only for the next 30 days, so don't wait too long on that. So, go check out what Manscaped has to offer and treat yourself. And now, back to that sweet, sweet lore. 100 years ago, a prophecy emerged that warned of the Calamity's return. It was the threat of Ganon, and it hung heavy over the royal family. The Queen of Hyrule, who carried the blood of the goddess in her veins, began to prepare. As was custom, she had been trained from the age of seven and on to fulfill her role as the Aspect of Wisdom, should the threat of Ganon ever arise. The Queen had strong friendships with leaders of neighboring cities and provinces throughout Hyrule. As such, all stood ready to aid in whatever was to come. It was expected that soon a hero would emerge to aid her in this task, but until then, she continued on her own. The command was issued for the ancient divine beasts from 10,000 years ago to be searched out and excavated. Sheikah elders aided in this task, and one by one, they were eventually found. With great care, special teams undertook the task of digging up each of the divine beasts. Soon, ancient guardians too were dug up, and research on them began. But a tragedy struck when the Queen of Hyrule very suddenly died. Her husband, King Rome, was blindsided by her passing and struggled to come to terms with it. He felt as though her absence was a dream, and the queen's daughter, her dearest child Zelda, also grieved the loss of her mother heavily, but that was in private. In the presence of others, the girl was steadfast and strong. When the queen died, Zelda was only six years old. She had received no training from her mother on how to harness the power of her bloodline, and there was no one else who could teach her what she needed to know. So the child was left to learn on her own, but under extreme pressure from her father, King Rome. The queen had been dear friends with the Gerudo chief Urbosa, and about a year after the queen passed, Urbosa made a trip to Hyrule Castle under the guise of diplomacy, but in truth, she was deeply concerned about the princess. Urbosa had seen the sorrow of the little girl after her mother had died, and she wanted to check in on how her training was going. And what she saw was heartbreaking. Zelda's father was forcing the seven-year-old girl into icy waters for prayer every day from sunup to sundown. The practices were so intense that Urbosa tried to command the child out of the water, but Zelda wouldn't comply. 
when she finally forced Zelda out. The little girl revealed a terror within her. Her powers weren't awakening and her father was constantly pressuring her to pray. And that this process wasn't working made the girl panic. She couldn't understand what was wrong with her. All Urbosa could do was hold the child and listen to her fears. After all, who could possibly question and defy the king of Hyrule? Over the coming years, each of the divine beasts was brought to the surface. It was a painstaking feat that took innumerable man-hours to accomplish. As the prophetic return of Ganon loomed lower and lower, the young Zelda undertook scholarly pursuits to understand the ancient guardians and the divine beasts, which the king sorely disapproved of. He believed that she should be spending her days in prayer to the goddess Hylia, trying to awaken her power, not learning more about the past and technology. When finally they were all brought up to the surface, the process of choosing champions to pilot them began. The now teenage princess went to each province to personally oversee the selections, and of course with her went an entourage of guards, researchers, and assistants. One day, the chosen Goron champion Daruk was strolling about Death Mountain and saw a little tiny guy being attacked. The Gorons had already been accustomed to the presence of Hylians on the mountain, so he rushed down to help the little fellow out. But by the time he had arrived, well, that little guy being attacked had already cleared out his attackers, and then he saved Daruk's hide by stopping a surprise attack. It was a bit embarrassing for the mighty Goron champion, but the two bonded over their extreme love of food, and they found out that they had quite a lot in common. The little guy's name was Link, and the two became fast friends. So, from the Gorons came Daruk, from the Rito came Rivali, from the Zora came Mifa, and from the Gerudo came Urbosa. Though they varied in aptitude, they each eventually came to master controlling their respective divine beast. Zelda began working closely with Sheikah researchers to understand the many varieties of ancient tech being unearthed. Things like the Sheikah Slate, the Shrine of Resurrection, old armor and weaponry, all the while developing bonds with the champions that would pilot the divine beasts. Daruk's good buddy Link also found himself playing a larger part in the story. Seems that during a test with the Ancient Guardians, one of them went a little bit haywire and turned aggressive. Link took it out using only a pot lid, and that garnered him the king's attention. Link was appointed to be Zelda's knight, and also granted the Master Sword, and boy was Zelda unhappy about it. Old legends told of the wise princess and courageous warrior standing against the powerful Ganon, and Link fit the courageous warrior trope to a T. He seamlessly fell into his role and was an unmatched swordsman, but he was also emotionless and mostly unspeaking. Zelda immediately disliked him and resented that he was so effortlessly able to fulfill his role in the prophecy. She had spent her entire lifetime struggling and suffering to play her part, and this ass just walks right in like it's no big deal. She hated him. Link was a reminder of her own apparent failures, and she wasn't shy about showing her contempt. All that truly knew Zelda could plainly see that she wanted nothing to do with him, and that Link for the most part remained stoic and unspeaking just added fuel to the problem. The princess went so far as attempting to get him to leave, or just ditching him outright. While en route to the Gerudo Desert, she used Gerudo Law to get him away from her. See, males aren't allowed in their towns, women only. And Zelda took a detour through their territory to use that law against him. He even set up a meeting with Urbosa to talk about the problem, and she told him that he could dress like a Garuda woman to get into the city. But by the time he was able to get his attire ready, she was long gone. And when he finally tracked Zelda down, Yiga assassins were about to lop her head off. The Yiga were once of the Sheikah long ago. When the king commanded that they rid themselves of their technology, some of those Sheikah who rebelled went on to form the Yiga clan. And all these thousands of years later, they now lived in service to Ganon. Link stepped in to save her from the assassins, and after that, she decided to give him a chance. 
She saw that he had gone above and beyond to track her down and to help her, and she also saw that she had been taking her anger out on him for a very long time. It took a lot of effort for both of them to open up, but it was food that they first bonded over. It revealed a bit of humanity in Link, that he so enjoyed good food. Eventually, Zelda asked him why he was so reserved and unwilling to speak, and he told her that it was because he felt like that was what he was supposed to do. He was meant to shoulder everyone else's problems with a silent strength. All that was ever expected of him was combat and problem solving for other people. And that's how his entire life had been. He'd been training as a knight since he could walk and he was praised for his silent obedience. Suddenly being expected to dramatically defy his own personality was difficult for him, but he was trying to be more open. Because really, he did have opinions and thoughts to be shared. Once the two of them started getting along and understanding each other a bit better, Zelda's smile returned and things just seemed to run a bit smoother. Except she still couldn't harness the power of her bloodline. She went to the Spring of Power and the Spring of Courage to pray to the goddess Hylia to awaken her powers, but both of those great journeys ended in failure. She prayed until she couldn't anymore and nothing happened. Her last hope was the Spring of Wisdom, but she couldn't begin that journey until her 17th birthday. The champions knew full well that should Ganon return, Zelda could not fulfill her role in stopping him. They and Link were prepared, but Zelda simply wasn't. And it wasn't for lack of trying, she'd spent almost her whole life trying to be what she needed to be. So, on her 17th birthday, she and Link departed for the Spring of Wisdom. The day before, Zelda and her father had an intense confrontation about her failures and how she was spending her time. It was deeply embarrassing for her, as the king had chastised and berated her in front of Link. In his own journal, the king expressed regret for doing that, and after Zelda had some time away from him, he would apologize and mend things between them. Together, Link and Zelda climbed Mount Lanayru, and Zelda prayed to the shrine all day, but nothing happened. No response, no awakening, it was a failed venture. At the base of the mountain, Zelda had to explain to the champions her shame, and during that tense conversation, Ganon struck. It was too late. The champions immediately went to their divine beasts, ready to pilot them and aid Link and Zelda in containing the calamity. But Ganon too had readied himself for this. This wasn't the first time that he had faced off against this exact ancient Sheikah tech. Using his own physical malice, Ganon manifested parts of himself into Blight monstrosities and sent them to each of the four divine beasts. The Blight took over each and every one, and when their champions appeared to take them back, the Blights of Ganon killed them. They never stood a chance. He was far too strong. And almost simultaneously, Ganon used his malice to overtake and corrupt the ancient guardians that protected the castle, and then the killing really began. The king died in the castle, along with most of the Hyrule Royal Guard and anyone else on the grounds. The corrupted guardians and Ganon's malice spread out from that epicenter and started bringing down surrounding settlements and population centers. What few of the army did make it out fled for the Akala region. The farthest reaches of Hyrule were terrorized but left mostly intact, whereas the heart of Hylian territory was ripped apart by Calamity Ganon. Link and Zelda barely made it out. But Zelda was in tatters, Link had been grievously wounded fighting off guardians, and the Master Sword itself was barely intact from the terrible battles. They ran all morning, but it was just too much for them to handle. They were cornered with no place else to run, with no energy left to carry them. But at that very bitter end, Link stood guard over the princess. They would face the end together. In that moment of finality, Zelda's powers finally awoke. She cast away the corruption within the guardians on the field and disabled them all in one fell swoop. It was so simple and devastating. And when the grand display finally faded, she was taken aback at what had just happened. 
they were safe here for now. With his task complete, Link couldn't remain. His injuries were too severe, and in the quiet of the field, he finally collapsed. He only lasted for a few moments before death fell upon him. The two of them had become friends, and all of this was Zelda's worst fear come true. She had so much to mourn and regret, but the immediate trauma before her was Link's death. But finally now, the Master Sword could reach out to the princess. Whatever was within the Ancient Blade wished for its champion to survive. It directed the princess to take Link's body to the Shrine of Resurrection. It would take years to accomplish, but he could be restored. Sheikah fighters found Zelda and Link on the empty field, and she commanded them to take his body to the shrine. There he would slumber for as long as was needed to bring him back to life. And Zelda herself went to the Lost Woods all on her own, carrying with her the damaged Master Sword. She laid it upon its old resting place at the heart of the forest before the Great Deku Tree, and for a while she prayed and spoke to it. She promised that the shrine would see Link restored, it would just take some time. The old great Deku tree spoke to her, asking her what her next move was. And while she didn't tell him exactly what she was going to do, she assured him that she knew what needed to be done. And she asked him to relay a message to Link someday, when he returned, but the great Deku tree insisted that anything she needed to tell him was better done herself, because this was not the end and he knew that she needed faith in the future. So, the Princess of Hyrule returned the Master Sword to its pedestal so that it too could rest and recover over the years to come and then she returned to her home. Zelda stood before the destroyed castle, and she trapped Calamity Ganon in it with her. She couldn't banish him completely, she couldn't force back his malice or cleanse the corruption from the ancient guardians, but she could at least stalemate him, enough that life in Hyrule could return and flourish. And there she remained, locked in struggle against the ultimate evil for 100 years. The first thing Link understood was a voice calling to him, beckoning him to open his eyes, asking him to wake up. When the restorative waters of the shrine receded, Link laid calmly and alone with no memory of his life. He was able to lift himself out of the shrine. He was able to take his own steps. He was fully restored and in control of his limbs. All that had been done to him before his death was washed away alongside his memory. At a nearby console was a bit of technology, left here waiting for him for when he finally awoke. The same voice that asked him to wake up speaks again, telling him that this is meant to guide him along after his long slumber. This is a Sheikah Slate, and it will allow him to access ancient Sheikah technology around the land, act as his map and his tracking, and store important information for him along the way. Thankfully, just beyond his sleeping chambers are a set of clothing so he doesn't have to trek out in his skivvies. And then, freedom. That voice once again tells him that he is the light of Hyrule that must shine once again. And then, Link returns to a big, wide world that is vague and foreign to him. Under the light of the rising sun, things seem to be peaceful here. It's quiet and lonely, but there is someone nearby, an old man camping off the nearby hill path. This is a face that Link knew once upon a time, but now he's completely unfamiliar. The older fellow doesn't push anything onto the stupefied young man. He playfully pokes at him, tells him that he's just some old dude, and he asks Link what brings him here. Except, Link doesn't even know where here is, which the old man doesn't express a strong reaction to. Because what would the point be in stressing Link out? He's certainly not the type to lie, so it's better to just gently begin guiding him. The old man does not reveal who he is, but he instead tells the hero that he is on the Great Plateau, the birthplace of the kingdom, and nearby is a sacred site that has been in decay since the decline of the kingdom began some 100 years ago. 
It's the temple of time. It's a ghost of its former self, but he doesn't push past that. It's an introduction to the area and himself, and that's enough for now. Link can go about his business and make his own choice. Now, Link has been asleep for a while. He might not be thinking things through because he immediately starts torching the hillside. I guess it's definitely a way to scare off or kill foes, but he does eventually stop the mayhem once that voice returns, telling him to go towards the mark on his map. And that leads him to another one of those consoles, just like the ones in the cave that he was asleep in. He knows that putting that Sheikah Slate into it will activate the console, so, well, he does. And it changes everything. From the ground, towers spring high into the sky all around the kingdom, as far as the eye can see. The spectacle of it is beautiful and terrifying. The very ground shakes from the force. Atop these great towers are vats, where local information is distilled into the Sheikah Slates. It gives Link a map of the area, so it will benefit him greatly to find these when entering a new region, as this land called Hyrule is sprawling and sometimes difficult to navigate. But with the resurrection of the towers, something else begins. That fair voice once again returns, and it begs Link to remember, to just try. Whoever she is tells Link that he's been asleep for 100 years. From a great castle in the heart of the kingdom that Link does not recognize, something begins to awaken as well. She calls it the Beast, and when it regains its power, the world will end. With Link's return and the awakening of the ancient towers, the Calamity too is resurrecting. Link had no way of knowing that this would happen, and worse, he still doesn't quite understand what it all means. At the base of the tower, that old man shows up like he was waiting for this to happen. He immediately intercepts Link and asks, Hey buddy, what's up? All those towers reactivated and something is rampaging around the castle. Link tells him that he heard a voice, but he doesn't know who it was. Well, for now, that's alright. The old man tells him what is happening around the castle. It's Calamity Ganon. 100 years ago, it brought ruin and slaughter to the kingdom. What remains now are just scraps of that long-lost time. Something within Hyrule Castle has been containing the Calamity, but just barely. It will regain its strength and one day break down the barriers holding it back. So the old man asks Link if he intends to go to that castle, which Link readily answers yes to. He doesn't need his memories to know what good and evil are, and he doesn't need his memories to know that he has to do something about this calamity. Well, Link can't just leap off the plateau. It's way too high up, and the old man knows that he won't last a second in that castle the way that he is now. So he tells Link that if he can clear the nearby shrines and bring him the treasures from within, then he will give him his paraglider. It's easy. The old man even shows him exactly where the first one is, and fair is fair, so Link gets on his way. This shrine serves Link's journey twofold. Placing the Sheikah Slate into the outside console will allow him to travel between each shrine seamlessly. He'll be able to port between them instantly. Given how huge Hyrule is, that is a vital key to succeeding. And at the end of each shrine is a reward. Some will be more difficult than others, but each of these shrines were created by a master to test whoever may enter them. The old masters were blessed with the sight of the goddess Hylia, wishing to aid those who were strong enough to stand against Ganon. Succeeding in their trials will garner Link their spirit orbs, which he can use during prayers to the goddess to further his health and stamina. Back on the surface, the old man greets Link on his way out. He knew exactly what Link would find down there and is pleased at his success. Though he doesn't yet understand all that the old man is talking about, the Elder Hylian tells him a bit more about the Sheikah, specifically about their tech, and how in the past it was used to save these lands from Ganon over and over again. He doesn't tell him everything, it's just enough to plant seeds into Link's mind. Maybe some information can kick up a memory or two. 
Before the old man will hand over his paraglider, he tells Link that he wants him to clear out another three shrines on the plateau as well. When he said treasure, apparently he meant from all the shrines on the plateau combined. He at least shows Link a few things about marking things on the map and moving about quickly, and in no time, Link is well on his way around the plateau clearing shrines and discovering the pure joy that comes with exploration. One field at a time, one hill at a time, one shrine at a time, Link accomplishes his goal. Learning new skills and mastering techniques was the name of the game, and by the time he's done with the final shrine, Link is ready to face the rest of Hyrule. The old man greets him once he's done and happily congratulates him. But before he'll hold up his end of the deal, he tells Link it's time to explain everything to him, and that he will meet him where two lines connecting the shrines would cross. Bit of a riddle, but not a tough one. The intersecting lines line over that broken down ruin, the once Temple of Time. The ancient guardians that Calamity Ganon overtook 100 years ago and turned against Hyrule made it all the way out here before deactivating. They tore the walls of the once grand temple down and laid waste to whatever was within. Now amongst the rubble are the remains of an altar to the goddess Hylia, where Link can take a moment to pray. Zelda struggled so fiercely to hear the words of the goddess, but Link didn't have to face that particular problem. He immediately hears the words of Hylia. Using his four spirit orbs, he's able to obtain his enhancement of choice. This is something he'll do over and over and over again as he journeys, something good to know before he leaves the plateau. But that old man still needs to uphold his end of their bargain. He's atop the temple, waiting for Link and ready to talk. Getting up there is a little bit dangerous, but at this point, Link should be able to scale a building and make it across a collapsing roof without breaking his own kneecaps. The old man finally tells Link what is going on here. He is the spirit of Hyrule's last leader. In life, he was King Rome, the father of Zelda. It's time to cast away the facade and give the hero a deeper glimpse into his past. King Rome tells Link of ancient legends about their ancestors standing against the terrible Ganon and the Sheikah technology that was involved in it. 100 years ago, when the threat of Ganon's return became undeniable, the divine beasts of old were excavated and armies of guardians were studied. A princess, a skilled knight, and four champions were to stand against Ganon to seal him away and save the land. But they were blind to Ganon's cunning and his ruthlessness. The Calamity sprang forth before they were ready and it devastated Hyrule. The champions and the knight were all lost, countless innocents inhabiting the land were killed, and the princess vanished after confronting Ganon herself. Whatever she had done had held Ganon within the castle, thus bringing a stalemate to the land, but that wouldn't last forever. King Rome tells Link that that princess was his own daughter and that he was the knight from the story. His life was returned through the Shrine of Resurrection, a process that took 100 years to complete. The voice he's been hearing is Zelda herself, calling to him from the castle. She will soon be exhausted from her eternal fight and Link must gather forces to come to her aid. Otherwise, Ganon will break free, regenerate, and demolish the rest of Hyrule. King Rome directs him towards the Divine Beasts. With their aid, Ganon can be weakened and defeated. Without them, the fight would be extreme. It's too great a risk for Link to try defeating Ganon alone. To gain greater knowledge on how to wrest them from Ganon's control, he tells Link to go east, out into the wilderness, to Kakariko Village where the elder Impa lives. Impa knew Zelda 100 years ago, and though very aged, she can help Link on his quest better than he can. The last bit of aid that he can offer is that paraglider. Now Link can finally leave the plateau. The king bids him farewell, and Link is left to his own devices. His first task is finding that woman named Impa in a place called Kakariko. There's a plethora of friends and foe alike to be met across Hyrule. Calamity Ganon did bring destruction and ruin, but life continued on after Zelda confined him to the castle. Outposts, small towns, and stables litter the countryside. 
Travelers even occupy the roads, despite dangerous creatures still lurking about. There's doom on the horizon, yet life and hope continues. If Link is willing to spare the time, there are even tasks and problems that he can offer the common man assistance in. There's never a lack of things to do and places to explore. His journey to Kakariko Village isn't a straight shot along the road, but rather a zigzag across the region. When he finally does reach the village outskirts, he's immediately met by a very aged woman who's taken a tumble, but she recognizes the Sheikah slate on his hip and tells him that they have been waiting a really long time for him to show up. Impa will be wanting to see him right away at the heart of the village, and this place feels nearly untouched by the outside world. When the Sheikah abandoned their technological endeavors 10,000 years ago, this is the lifestyle that they return to. Simple homes amidst a modest village with a foot-worn path to travel by. The guards standing in front of the elder Impa's home stop Link, but they too recognize his Sheikah slate and know who he is. Impa has told all of her people stories from the past, and they all know what happened 100 years ago. And Impa herself recognizes Link's face and happily greets the young fellow. She thinks that he should remember her, but the light of familiarity isn't there. She understands that he has lost his memories, but she doesn't overreact or behave in any way other than calm. There would be no point in such behavior, and maybe this is a good thing. The weight of the world hasn't yet crushed him. He can approach this with new eyes and an unburdened heart. Impa has some words for Link from the princess herself spoken some 100 years ago. But before she'll say them, Impa tells Link that he needs to be ready to hear them. He must be ready to risk his life for them. But she will only allow him to make that choice once he hears her tale of the past, so that he can fully know of what was meant to happen 100 years ago. Impa's tale is a complete historical recounting of the preparations made to fight Ganon 10,000 years ago. The creation of the Divine Beasts, the ancient Guardian Army, the tales of the Princess and the Knight, it's all there laid out before him in one congruent story. When Ganon's return was imminent 100 years ago, they'd sought to walk the same path as their ancestors, but despite it all, they had underestimated Ganon's power and they lost that fight. Badly. Now that he knows what happened 10,000 years ago to stop Ganon, and understands what must be done to end the Calamity now, Impa tells him that the message Zelda had left was free the four divine beasts. Impa recommends that Link further expand his Sheikah Slate by seeking out the research lab in Hatano Village, and gives him a mark on his map to help him along the way. Hatano Village is a pretty long trip and comes with tons of exploration and drama along the way. Like meeting his first Yiga clan representative, who promptly tries to murder Link when he refuses the offer to join them. It's not the last time that he'll meet up with the Yiga. They tend to pop up at really inconvenient times on the road, under the guise of regular Hylian folk. Weird obsession with bananas, they're a very strange group. Hatno Village itself is pretty idyllic. It escaped the carnage of the Calamity 100 years ago and is still standing strong against threats from the outside world. Shops and homes are all around the roads, there are children running around playing, adults lounging and gossiping, and livestock safely grazing on the hillsides. High atop said hills is the lab that Impa told him to find. There, Link meets Simon and Pira. The man, Simon, spots that his Sheikah Slate is missing runes, but he knows who precisely Link is. Impa's words are known even here, and he knows that he has to help Link in every way that he can. The other Sheikah in the lab, Pura, is the director of the facility, and though she looks like a child, that's just because of an experiment that de-aged her. She's actually Impa's sister, and she is very, very old. Pura was one of the Sheikah that took Link to the Shrine of Resurrection after he had fallen in battle. But all pleasantries aside, Pira is all too happy to help Link restore his Sheikah Slate. All he needs to do is first bring up some blue flame from the ancient furnace in town so that the lab can use it. It's not a hard task, just takes a whole lot of running up that hill. But it powers the console inside of the lab, and with it lit, they can proceed. 
They add back in a camera, compendium, and an album. With its restoration comes old files from 100 years ago. This used to belong to Zelda herself, and she left photographs on it for Link to find when he woke up. Since the two of them went everywhere together, there's a strong chance that he was present when she took these pictures, and Pura is willing to bet that if he visits the site of each 12 pictures, then maybe it will jog that old memory of his, but that was something he would be better discussing with Impa instead of her. But yeah, okay, but what about adventure? Link doesn't need his hand held the whole time, so he'll go see Impa later. For now, there are discoveries to be made and fights to be picked. Marvelous creatures still call Hyrule home, like the Great Fairies and the Horse Fairy. For a price, they'll render various services and provide upgrades to Link. Bit of advice, don't hurt horses. Link passes through what feels like countless shrines and reactivates great towers all across the land. And from time to time, big old brawlers rear their ugly heads and engage Link in fights out in the wild. After about a week though, something really concerning happens. Under the light of a full moon, a deep scarlet shade covers the land. Ganon's power grows with each day, and at the hour of the moon's apex, he reaches the height of his strength. So vicious does Ganon become that the blood moon reflecting his power revives the enemies that Link has felled that cycle. Even if the inhabitants of Hyrule cut back Ganon's minions and retook the land, all creatures killed in the name of the light will be returned to life within a week by Ganon. All the progress that Link made in clearing the fields is undone with their resurrections and the fights will begin anew. The Blood Moon serves as a terrible reminder of Ganon's power and is truly an event to be dreaded. A strange forest comes into view and drawing closer seems to bring the sky lower. The fog becomes a wall that's impossible to see through. Braziers mark the way forward, but eventually, seeing them becomes difficult too. The pull of the flame with the wind helps Link navigate his way through, but once the braziers are gone, he has to use a torch to find his way. These are the lost woods, and following the wrong path could be disastrous, but his patience is rewarded by what lay at the heart of the maze, the Korok Forest. Link has met a few of the Korok on his journey. They've always been friendly and helpful, if not a bit too mischievous, but they make their home here under the protection of the great Deku Tree, who also oversees an old friend from Link's former life, the Master Sword. When all hope seemed gone, after Link had been taken away to the Shrine of Resurrection to be revived, Zelda came here with it, so that it too could rest and recover in Link's absence. In the century that's passed, it's become whole and strong once again, waiting for the hero to return and claim it. When he tries to pull it, he has brief flashes, memories from his past life, only moments at a time that don't quite yet fit together. The disturbance wakes up the great old tree, who's really surprised that Link has finally come back. He didn't think he would, it's been so long they'd given up hope. But Link's empty stare cues the tree in that he has no idea who or what he is. So the tree gives him a brief tutorial. The Deku Tree has been watching over Hyrule since time immemorial. What now he protects is the Sword of the Chosen Knight, created by Hylia herself, the weapon meant to be used against Calamity Ganon. Link wielded it a century ago, and he's free to try drawing it again, but he risks death in doing so. If he lacks the endurance, the Master Sword will drain all life from him. If Link wants to draw the sword, he's free to make that choice, but he'd best do it knowing that he is strong enough to do so. One heartbeat at a time, he puts everything he has into reclaiming the Blade of Evil's Bane. With calm reassurance inside that he is meant to wield the sword, Link pushes himself to the brink of consciousness and once again holds rightfully in his hand the Master Sword. After 100 years apart, they are back together and one step closer to accomplishing what they were made to do, stop the Calamity. And for a moment, 
Link sees Zelda 100 years ago, reassuring the damaged sword that one day he would return for it. Before departing this place, the Deku Tree tells the hero that he longs to see Zelda's smiling face once more. He will need the help of the four divine beasts, so he'd best get things moving along. Alright, first up, well, Link completely forgets to go see Impa, but he doesn't need to because while exploring the region nearby Kakariko, he sees a new face, that of Azora. This fellow named Groove is trying to reach his prince, but they're too high up in this tower for the prince to hear his yelling. So he asks Link to find a way down to him and introduce himself because they were very specifically looking for a Hylian, for some reason. Another Zora soldier greets Link farther down and lets him know that they're looking for a Hylian warrior. And he seems to fit the bill. No pressure, not weird. It's just that their entire kingdom is in peril and they need Link to save them. Prince Sidon is waiting for Link. He's been watching him, actually. At the bridge crossing into their land, he greets the hero. After brief introductions, a very jazzed-up prince tells Link that he can tell he's no ordinary person and that he really needs his help. The Zora's domain is experiencing massive rainfall because of the divine beast, Varuda. It's constantly pumping out water and now flooding is imminent. Of course, Link agrees to help. This is precisely where he needs to be. Because of the intense rain, the cliffs are unclimbable, and since Link can't swim up rivers, he's on his own trekking up the mountain towards the domain. And being honest, it is a right big pain in the keister. Prince Sidon shows up from time to time to encourage his ascent, to remind him of how much they need his help, not to, you know, keep pressuring him or anything. This complete stranger that he's fully dependent on to save the lives of all his people, it's an entire city that's dependent on him, no pressure, Link. Also, be careful, you don't want to slip and break your kneecaps. Well, he eventually completes the climb and reaches the lovely Zora's domain. He's been here before, some 100 years ago. Quite a lot, actually, he would come here as a child. But he has no memory of any of it. A statue to the long-dead champion Mipha is at the heart of the establishment, but it doesn't ring any bells either. Prince Sidon greets him as soon as his head pops up over the horizon and ushers him on towards the king. Along the pathways, there are a few Zora that still remember him from their youth. And though they're thrilled to see him return, he just can't quite seem to recall any of them. The eldest among the Zora remember him with much more clarity and are not really happy to see him. The loss of their champion, the Princess Mipha, brought great sorrow upon them, and some can't move on from the past. There are even some outright threats made against Link when they recognize him. King Dorofin is far more kind and receptive to Link, though. It takes the king a beat to recognize him, but a hundred years later, it's still Mipha's father that's ruling the Zora. This guy is a complete unit, too. A massive Zora that lumbers over everyone else. But he's genuinely kind and understanding towards Link's situation. The king tells Link that he and Mipha were close 100 years ago. But the prince backs him down from it, telling the king that pushing that topic won't help anything. Rather than dwell on the past, they move on to the present danger, the divine beast. The thought of asking Link for help kicks up the anger of those most elder in the king's court, namely the one called Muzu. To some here, Link was seen as a failure and the reason that Mipha was killed. But this flooding issue isn't just a Zora problem. If the dam holding back the waters breaks, then Hyrule will flood and all caught downstream will be taken out with it. The king tells Link that to stop the flow of water, he needs to apply electricity to the orbs on each of Varuda's shoulders. The Zora are quite vulnerable to electricity and his assistance in shutting down the Divine Beast water production would be greatly, incredibly appreciated. The only issue is actually finding shock arrows to use. Before they conclude, Link reveals to King Dorofin that Zelda 2 is still alive. 
She's in Hyrule Castle fighting to contain Calamity Ganon, so the Zora will do whatever they can to aid her in this. If Link can do as Zelda asked and restore the Divine Beast, then it will be at his disposal when his confrontation with Ganon begins. To help Link reach the Divine Beast, the King gifts to Link a special Zora armor that will allow him to swim up rivers and waterfalls. It was handcrafted by Mifa and intended for the one that she would marry, or that she wanted to marry. But well, that's certainly not in the books now, regardless of what happened a hundred years ago. Once the king has finished his request, the prince tries to explain to a particular elder court member that Mifa did in fact have quite a few feelings for Link, and therefore that armor in particular was meant for him. Hearing this and getting a good look at the statue of the late princess does kick up a few memories for Link. While it's unclear how he felt about Mifa, the two of them were friends and comrades. She promised Link that no matter what happened, if someone did harm him, she would be there to heal it. But it was something that she couldn't see through 100 years ago because tragedy came too quickly to the land. This recollection of Mifa and the fact that the Zora armor fits him perfectly is enough that the core elder Muzu gives him a pass and tells him where he can go get a few shock arrows. While the Zora elders may disapprove of Link's presence, this is the way that things will be. Now. It's time to finally get to work. Muzu had told him that he would find shock arrows at Shatterback Point atop Ploymus Mountain. And something, something, something else about a terrifying creature or whatever. Well, that turns out to be a Lionel, and it's one rough and tumble fight. But around the Lionel's field are a ton of shock arrows. So in this case, Link takes the risk in killing the Lionel so that he can have full run of the field. With plenty of shock arrows equipped, Link descends down into the reservoir to meet Prince Sidon. And ever the optimist, he's damned ready to help Link get things under control. Sidon can travel through water extremely fast, so Link will hold on while he does the driving, and when the time is right, Link will fly into the air and shoot the Divine Beast's shoulders with shock arrows. Varuda isn't some helpless construct, though. It actively tries to impede their approach and harm them. With each orb that Link deactivates, it gets more aggressive against them. But one by one, the two work together and deactivate the water production cycle the Divine Beast was stuck in. Water stops falling from the sky, and Link can now approach and enter the machine. Prince Sidon safely drops Link at the entrance to the beast, bids him luck and safety, and promises to meet him back at the Zora's domain. And within, Link discovers that the spirit of Princess Mifa is trapped here. She bids him a sad hello, but holds hope that if Link can find the source of the Divine Beast's corruption, then it can be freed from Ganon's control. Familiar Sheikah technology is within the temple, and with a few hints from Mifa to get him started, Link takes out each puzzle and obstacle one by one. Once he's reached the map download, he's able to use the Sheikah Slate to move the trunk of the elephant-shaped construct to pour water into choice places. There aren't a huge number of foes in the beast, it's more a trial of figuring out how to navigate it. He needs to activate all the terminals within to reboot it and purge Ganon's corruption. But uh, what happens to that malice once the Divine Beast ejects it? Well, that's the heart of why Link must be the one to trek these machines. 100 years ago, Ganon sent part of himself, one of his own creations, to each of the Divine Beasts to kill its champion and corrupt it. This is the being that murdered Mipha, Water Blight Ganon. With a few well-placed arrows to the face and some bops from a now brightly glowing Master Sword, he melts through most of its health bar. In just a few cycles, Link pushes the Blight into an escalated state. In an attempt to control Link's movements, the Blight floods the arena and forces him onto platforms. But despite its tricks and aggressions, the fight remains the same. Shoot it in the face, then boop it with metal. Destroying the Water Blight Ganon is what finally releases the Divine Beast from the terrible corruption that has been controlling it for a century. And two, with its deliverance, comes Mipha's freedom.
the Zora champion can once again stand by Link's side to fight against Ganon. In life, Mifa was a powerful healer, but in death, she has no use for that ability. As she cannot walk the lands of Hyrule, she gifts to Link her healing ability. Should he fall in battle, she will revive him on the spot so that he might continue the fight. Though that power is not unlimited, he must still choose his fights carefully as the ability takes time to recharge. Mifa has been trapped here for so long, she'd nearly lost hope that she could be free from Ganon. But at last, her hope and purpose has returned and she can find peace. She promises Link that when he needs her aid, she will be there to help. And when the time comes to face off against Ganon, she will rise to pilot Varuda. Zora's domain is now safe. The waters will eventually subside and threats of flooding will fade with it. The divine beast will await its call atop a nearby mountain, standing ever ready to strike out against Ganon when the time is right. Mifa lost everything 100 years ago, and she knows she cannot reclaim it. Her family is lost to her, and she is duty-bound to remain with the Divine Beast. She cannot see her father or her brother, but she can now at least state her sorrow for making her father worry and how she wishes she could see him again, even if it was just once more. Link is safely sent back to the Zora's domain where his return has been eagerly awaited. Seeing his safe arrival alongside the calmed skies lifts the hearts of the Zora, and when he tells them all of his success, it's like they can finally breathe again. Even the Elder Council member Muzu is relieved and welcoming to the outcast. Prince Sidon too gets some much-deserved recognition for his bravery and tact, because without him this would have been far, far more difficult of a task. One day he will sit as the King of the Zora, a worthy heir to a great empire. But Link cannot remain here forever. The state of Zora's domain was eye-opening. He must hurry to get to the next Divine Beast, lest some tragedy befall the people who once oversaw them. But before finding the next one, he does stop by to see Impa in Kakariko Village. She gives him advice on where to go next, a faithful guide through and through. But she hones in on that Sheikah slate at his hip and confirms that the images on it are from Zelda herself, taken some 100 years ago. Impa encourages Link to seek out every single spot they were taken at so that he might reclaim his memories. For the most part, he's on his own now, well equipped with knowledge and gear that will get him to where he needs to go. He will seek out those parts of his past so that he can remember those most important to his life a century ago, and perhaps better understand the fight to come with Ganon. Because what happened a hundred years ago cannot happen again. This time, they cannot fail.